0: Hi, I'm Pastor Dennis Hester, and I wanna welcome you as you join First Baptist Watauga in listening to these messages. Whether you're listening uh, on an audio podcast, or you're watching on our Facebook page or on YouTube, we're glad that you've joined us. Our heart and desire is that through these messages, you might continue to grow in your faith. We're a church that's committed to God's word and uh, simply proclaiming the truth of what he says. And so as you join us, I hope that you grow and that you flourish in your faith. I'd also encourage you to make sure that you're plugged into a local body of believers. If you're here in Watauga, we'd love to meet you, that you could join in with us. If you're outside of Watauga, I'd encourage you to find that body of Christ that you can get plugged into. There's nothing that, that can substitute for that local uh, relationship, as you join with others in worship of our holy God. So welcome. We're glad that you're here to listen and join in. If you would need prayer or you need to be encouraged in some other way, I'd encourage you to uh, just simply uh, email us, uh, contact us through Facebook, and we'd love to get back with you as soon as we could. God bless you as you listen to God's word. And uh, this, during this season as we celebrate his birth, we get often caught up in the sentiment of the baby in the manger and sing songs like Away in the Manger, forgetting that even when Christ was born as a babe in that manger, he was God. And he is God. And that was not his beginning and that certainly was not his end. In Scripture, in the New Testament, there is one and only one miracle that Jesus performed that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. That's it's because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all had different purposes. They all saw things from a different perspective. And... Uh, at my text today, I'll go ahead and give it to you so you can be turning there. It may take you a little bit to find it. It's gonna come from Micah chapter five. We don't spend a lot of time studying the Old Testament prophets, but that's where the text of the message is gonna be, be from. Just give me a moment to get there with you. Uh, in the New Testament, the only miracle that's recorded in all four of the Gospels is when Jesus took the bread and the fish from the little boy and fed over 5,000 people. Scripture says he fed 5,000 men plus the women and children who had gathered there. So we really don't know the total number of the people that he fed. It doesn't matter if he'd fed a thousand people with uh, a few loaves and a few fish. That would have been a miracle in and of itself. But one of the things that that little piece of trivia illustrates for me, and I hope for you, is that God delights in taking what seems like impossible circumstances and accomplishing his purposes. He delights in taking what is little and making it great. He delights in in working in our lives in such a way to take someone that you would you would look at their life and say they'll never amount to anything and doing great things with those people. And this week's message is going to deal with that issue a little bit. Uh, in Luke chapter 2 and in Matthew chapter 2, both of those gospels give us Uh, the the location where Jesus was born. Now we know he was born in Bethlehem. Matthew chapter two, we find out that Matthew points back to a prophecy from Micah chapter five, verse two. Matthew says the reason that Jesus was born in Bethlehem was because God had predicted it hundreds of years before. So go with me back to Micah chapter five. We're just gonna read these two verses. verse one and two, and we're gonna focus in on the prophecy that we find there in verse two. The scripture tells us, as he speaks to Bethlehem, now, daughter, who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief, a siege is set against you. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. Now, let me pause there for just a moment because Bethlehem was a little, a bedroom community a few miles outside of Jerusalem, and Bethlehem was kind of the, 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 you know, the stepchild that was mistreated, you know, like in, in the Cinderella movies, or the Cinderella story. Bethlehem was, was looked down upon. Bethlehem was, was, uh, was not considered to be much. Bethlehem could look up on the mountain and see its beautiful sister city, so to speak, Jerusalem, with its grand walls and its fortresses and the beautiful temple that Solomon had built. And Bethlehem was nothing. It was a little community outside. And so those who lived in Bethlehem must have had some type of inferiority complex. Kind of like people who live in Oklahoma do with Texas. But uh, just kidding. I know that one's gonna get me in trouble. And after the football game yesterday, it really doesn't help Uh, my argument there. We see that a lot in life. We see those who have that complex that feel like they just can't. They're not much. They don't have enough. They're not good enough. Oftentimes that's exactly how we feel. When we go through struggles in life, we feel like we're beaten down, we feel like that that we don't have what it takes to to stand back up. That's that's where Bethlehem was. That's the picture, uh, the image that that the, the, the prophet gives us of Bethlehem there in chapter five, verse one. And so the prophet then brings this encouragement and he says, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from the ancient of times. God, in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, for his purposes, chose to send his son. When the Savior, who we had talked about last week, who was predicted in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, at the very beginning of, the, of time, when that Savior came to step into this world, to step onto this earth, to take on God taking on human flesh, he did not do it in Babylon, one of the great cities of the time. He didn't do it in Jerusalem, the great city of Israel. He did it in Bethlehem. And I believe that he did that for great reason, for for what he wanted to teach us, what he wanted to show us, what he wanted to accomplish in and for us. Why Bethlehem? Why would God choose an obscure place, a little town, probably not even a city that many people would, would, would not think a lot of? Why Bethlehem? I think that there's really two big categories of reasons. I'm gonna give them to you as two reasons here. And I think that we find it in the text. You were small among the clans of Judah. Yeah, I, to you this ruler will come. First of all, God chose Bethlehem because he could. Because he is God. He's sovereign. Man would say, well, you can't. That's not where the Savior will come from. The Jews would be thinking, that's not where the Savior is going to come from. A world from the outside looks at the the story of Christmas and says, that's crazy, that's a myth, that's some made up tale of old, that doesn't make any sense. If there was a God and if God was to send uh, His Son or He was to step on this earth, certainly He wouldn't have come to a little community outside of Jerusalem, obscured and set away. But God uses whoever He wants. And it's not up to us to choose. God used a shepherd boy to become a king. The prophet came to to Jesse and said, uh, bring your sons to me. He was gonna anoint, lay hands on, and and coronate, so to speak, the next king of Israel, the the second great king of Israel, and so Jesse brings his oldest boy and, and Samuel looks at him and says, Oh, no, that's not the one. He brings his next one, no, that's not, that's not the one. He brings all, all six of his sons before Samuel and Samuel says, God hasn't chosen any of these. Is there, do you have any other sons? No. Well, there's David. He's the littlest. He's out there in the field watching the sheep so I could bring all the good ones to you. So we'll bring him. And he brings David in before Samuel. And Samuel says, he's the one God's chosen. Even the the, the father with seven sons would not imagine that David was going to be the king of Israel, but God chose David. Why? Because God is God. God knows the heart. God knows what's going on inside. And even more important than that, God understands his purposes and his plans. God chose a shepherd boy to be king when even the shepherd boy's father put him seventh in the line, last to be chosen. God chose a, a reluctant evangelist to, read, to, to, to bring a, an entire kingdom to repentance. In the Old Testament, we're a little bit familiar with the story of, of Assyria, the great kingdom that it destroyed, took captive the northern ten tribes of Israel and, and destroyed all of the, uh, the Damascus and, and Samaria and all of those northern areas of Israel. God used the Assyrian king to, to, to enact his judgment. And, and the Israelites, the Jews, didn't like Assyria. But God said, you know what? I created them too, and I love them. And, and Jonah, I want you to go give them a warning that if they don't repent, that they're going to be destroyed. Jonah said, I ain't gonna do it. And he fled. He didn't want anything to do with being the prophet who took the message to the Assyrian king. And so, y'all know the story. He got on a boat, was trying to get away, the storm came. Jonah said, man, this is my fault. God sent the storm because of my sin. So they threw Jonah overboard. Jonah was done. He was dead. He was sinking to the bottom of the sea. God sent a great fish. God wasn't done yet. He grabbed the reluctant prophet, spit him out on the shore and said, you want another another chance at this? Jonah said, not really, but I'll do it. so he walks to Assyria, walks through the middle of town with his head down. I get the sense he was whispering, y'all better repent. If you don't repent, God's gonna get you. The king and the whole the whole Assyrian government repented, humbled themselves, and sacked cloth and ashes. And then Jonah was mad that God brought repentance. God used Jonah when Jonah didn't even want to be used. Why? Because he is God. I wouldn't have picked Jonah, especially after he messed up the first time. You wouldn't have picked Jonah, but God chose Jonah to accomplish his purpose because he's God. God used a fisherman who denied him to preach one of the greatest messages when the Holy Spirit was poured out and 3,000 people were saved at one time. Peter, who had just denied Christ when Christ was needed him most, had just said three times, I don't even know the man. God still chose to use Peter to accomplish his purposes. Why? Because God has a purpose and a plan and God can do what he wants. God used one of the most prolific persecutors of the early church to become the greatest missionary of all time. God chose Saul who was purposefully going from town to town, dragging Christians out of their homes, having them stoned and imprisoned. and God met him on the road to Damascus transformed his life and used him to carry the message to the Western world. Our heritage of faith comes from God's choice to use somebody that we would not have chosen. Why? Because God is sovereign and he can do what he wants to do. He is God. Are you getting the point? God chose Bethlehem out of his purpose and his design And we may not ever understand all of the reasons that God chose Bethlehem. I think he gives us hints in scripture of why he chose Bethlehem. And I'm grateful that he chose Bethlehem because it teaches me that I don't have to worry about the details if God chooses me. If God chooses to send me on a mission or to have a purpose for me, it doesn't matter if I feel weak. It doesn't matter if I don't have enough. It doesn't matter if I'm not good enough or not wealthy enough or don't have enough money or I'm not big enough. All I have to do is walk in obedience and God will accomplish his purpose. God chose Bethlehem because he could and he's sovereign and God delights, this is the second major point here, he delights in doing big things with little resources. God just seems, that seems to, to be something that, that, that is a part of his innate character. He, he, he uses what we would think was impossible to accomplish great tasks. I mentioned this one already. He used a boy's lunch to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. God, God can take what is so small and accomplish an incredible task. God can take a seed, a seed this big. And when it's placed in the ground, create a stalk of wheat that might reproduce 50 or 100 or 1,000 fold. And God delights in taking what's tiny and accomplishing something that is great. God took a ragtag group of 11 men, one of them was a tax collector. Several of them were fishermen. They, they're, they're, they uh, Man, even if you, if you read the cleaned up versions of scripture, there's some things that came out of Peter and Andrews and Johns and uh, things that came out of their mouths that, that you would think God can't use somebody like that. Then you have Peter's denial. You have Thomas's doubt and his questioning. They walked with Jesus for three years. Three years and saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. Saw him raise a, a dead boy that was being carried out on, on, on a cot, carried out to the grave to be buried. Saw Jesus raise him up from the dead. Peter and, and and James and John and Thomas saw over and over and over, God do these incredible miracles, and they still, you get to the end of Jesus' life, and they still didn't get it. Jesus takes them up in the garden and says, I want y'all to pray for a little bit. Well, I'm gonna go over here and pray. Don't go to sleep. He looks back, they're snoring. You know why Peter, James, and John seem to be kind of useless people like that? Because they're just like us. But God took those 11 men, fishermen, tax collectors, regular everyday folks, and used them to bring the good news of the gospel to an entire world. Years ago, when I first came here as pastor, I called seven random men out of the congregation and had them come stand up here it, it, and so that we could have that visual. Do you realize that God took, just took seven, I mean, took 11 men from various occupations and used them to turn the world upside down. Every one of them ended up giving up their lives for their faith. Because God rejoices in doing great things with something that's small. God chose the little town of Bethlehem, downtrodden, set aside, not respected, to not only bring King David, but to bring King Jesus. Out of Bethlehem, God did something that none of us would have ever planned. Then as we look at the last half of verse two, I want you to see something else here. He said, I will send among you, among the clans of Judah, one who will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from the ancient of times. I want you to notice two incredibly important truths that come out of this text. The first one is this when Jesus was born in Bethlehem to Mary, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, that was not his beginning. Jesus was from antiquity. Jesus was was God from the beginning. In fact, in the human mind, we think everything has to have a beginning. Jesus was God when there was no beginning. Jesus was, Jesus is, and Jesus is to come. He is the, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Make no question about it. Jesus, as, as the even in God's word, as we use human language to, to try to describe who Jesus is, and his purpose, and, and his nature, and his character, Human words fail us. We call him the only begotten son of God. And that gives us this idea that at some time he was born. Well, he was born as though he took on human flesh. But before he took on human flesh, he was. He's the the king of kings and lord of lords. He was in the beginning. Colossians chapter 1 says that he was there at creation. It was by him and through him and for him. All things were created. Jesus didn't come into being 2,000 years ago in the little town of Bethlehem. Jesus was, and he entered our world 2,000 years in in the womb of Mary the Virgin in Bethlehem. Jesus was and is and forever will be God. Now, as I always tell you, My mind cannot fully comprehend and certainly cannot explain in human language how God is three in one, how God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, how God exists in all of those ways. And any model that we try to use to to define that and describe that, it may give us a hint into his character, but it fails because he is... He is God. And here's the bottom line. I've come to the point where I just don't worry about it. Some people will tell me, well, you believe in the Trinity, and well, that's craziness. Yeah, it's crazy. You know what? If God was, was so small that my mind could understand him, he wouldn't be a very big God. But he is so great and he is so mighty that somehow he could step out of his place of residence that is outside of the universe God doesn't live in the heavens he lives above the heavens we saw that in Hebrews a few months back he he created it all and no matter how big the universe is he is bigger than the universe and somehow he stepped out of that and entered into the womb of a a young girl most scholars believe that Mary's betrothal would have come when she was young, 13, 14 years old, maybe at the oldest 16, God chose to enter into the womb of the Virgin Mary when she was betrothed to Joseph. And yet, he was still God in the womb from the beginning. Jesus is eternal. His origin can't even be defined it's from the ancient of days. He is God. The one who was born in Bethlehem, who took on human flesh, who became one of the names that's given to Christ, Emmanuel, which means God with us, so that he could identify with our sin. He could identify with our struggles and yet live a sinless life and die for our sin as the perfect sacrifice on the cross and then be resurrected again so that he defeated the enemy he always was. Jesus is, was, and always will be God. So we struggle with our language when we worship the Father, we worship the Son, we worship the Spirit. But He is God. Jesus is eternal, and Jesus' purpose was planned. That's the other thing that I want you to understand from this text. It was not an accident that Jesus came into this world. It was not an accident that he lived a sinless life. It was not because Satan somehow won the battle that, that he got a hold of Judas's heart and, and that, that Jesus was betrayed and that Jesus was crucified. It wasn't because the Roman government uh, w- was so strong at the time. God, I love that old old. Him that says he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. Jesus did not have to die on the cross for you and me. God did not have to send his son to be born of a virgin. God did not have to humble himself and become obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. He did not have to do that. He did it because he was compelled by his love for those whom he created. And he wanted to give us hope He wanted to give us life, and he wanted to give us a second chance. Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem that day over 2,000 years ago because God chose to send his son for us, and he planned it from the beginning. And even if you want to argue that that he didn't plan it until Adam and Eve died, I I believed he he planned it and he knew it was going to happen even before he created Adam and Eve. But we know at least from Genesis 3.15 that God had already had it on his mind and had a plan that he executed thousands of years later and he did it in Bethlehem. Jesus was purposed and planned for us. Now think about that. It's not just that Jesus, God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son to be born and die. God loved me So much that he sent his son to be born of a virgin, to suffer as a man, to live as a man, and to die on a cross for me and for my sin. And it wasn't something, it wasn't some idea that he just thought of one day and did on the spur of a moment. Something that God purposed and planned for thousands of years knowing the pain and the suffering that it was gonna bring and yet he still purposed it and we see that in these prophecies that God was at work thousands of years before to, to, to plan and accomplish his purpose that we might have hope of eternal life. He is God and he died for us. I wanna pivot because the, the primary message that I want you to hear, that I believe God has has spoken to me about this text, is that what God chooses to do is to take something that is small, that seems insignificant, and, and to create incredible things, to do something mighty with that. To do that, our eyes have to stay focused on him. For God to, God wants to use us. but We need to be humble enough that we keep our eyes on him. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Look with me at one of my favorite texts. It's a hymn, a Christian hymn that we see in the New Testament. I quote it often. Matthew uses it regularly. It's a beautiful passage. It's a beautiful hymn from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and following. I want to read the first three verses and then make the first point and then read the next three. Scripture says adopt this attitude, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God and did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. The first thing that I want you to see and celebrate about Christmas is that in Christ, we see this incredible example of the humility of Christ. In his humility, he provided for us an example to follow. Have this attitude, have this mind which was also in Christ Jesus. That even though he is God, humbled himself to take on the form of a human, to take on the form of a servant even, to wrap a towel around himself and wash the feet of his disciples, even the one who is about to betray him and the one who is about to deny him. Jesus humbled himself to serve And then went a step further than that. He humbled himself to die. Even death on the cross. In his birth in Bethlehem. God chose to expand on. Put on display. The humble beginnings that he chose for his son. In the little town of Bethlehem. The son of God was born. The first announcement of his birth after he was born came to the shepherds on the hillside. Those who were on the outside of town. Those who are out there with the filthy sheep. God in every way sent his son into this world to put on display for us what true humility was. We think when we humble ourselves that you know, we're, it's something tough to do. But in reality, you and I aren't anything anyway. We're like King Nebuchadnezzar. One day we could be walking around on the rooftop looking at all that we built, right? And the next day be crawling around on our stomachs eating grass out of the yard. Because we're not God. Every breath I take, every every dollar that I make, (laughs) everything that I have is a gift from God. It's his that's on loan to me. He is God, I'm not. And, and for me to humble myself, it's really not a very big step. I go from about here to here. <laughs> I go from there to there. Because I'm nothing in reality. There's, been, there's seven billion people on this earth. I'm just one of them. There's, there's more to come, there's more. I love, I almost hate to use him as an example anymore, but there's a comedian that I used to watch on TV, Cliff Huxtable, I won't use his you know, other name. But, but he, he said, uh, he used to tell his kids, look, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. And I can make another one that looks just like you. Well, if we think we could do that as parents, how much more can God do that? God, I walk around proud and God looks at me and says, uh, if he wanted to, he'd go, and make another one. Because he's God. That's my point. And when we walk around all puffed up with pride, thinking that we're something, we set ourselves up for failure. We set ourselves up to be humbled. God gave us the example through Christ. He sent his son to be born of a virgin to a, a carpenter who as, as the stepdad who they weren't even married in a little town in Bethlehem that nobody cared about to show us what true humility is. And not only that, but he humbled himself to die a criminal's death. We can learn something incredible from that truth. Have this mind, have this attitude in you that was also in Christ Jesus, that you walk in this humbly, recognizing that you're not God, but he is. He is worthy of our worship. He is the one that that is due our celebration and our worship. He's the one that ought to be lifted up, not me and my accomplishments. I ought to be looking to him, because everything that I have is a gift from him. And second, he is worthy of worship, because he is God. He is the Lord and the creator of the universe. The song in Philippians goes on to say, For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God sent his son in the most humble way to teach us how to walk humbly and to remind us that he's God and that we're not. He, the one, the creator of the universe, did that with a purpose in mind because he sought to redeem a broken and lost world. He sent his son to die on the cross so that you and I could have hope of eternal life. Now here's one of the big problems for our world. We can say for our culture, we can say for the lost out there, but I'll say it for us as the church. Sometimes we think we're something when we're really not. Thinking that, you, that, that you're okay when God says you're a sinner will end up causing you to spend eternity separated from him in hell. It's the bottom line. If you think you're all right and God says, you know what? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Without putting your trust and faith in my son whom I sent to die for you to offer you this incredible gift of salvation, if you won't humble yourself to receive that gift, you have no hope. You'll have no eternal life. Scripture's clear. It doesn't matter how good you are, you're not good enough to be God. You're not holy enough, you're not smart enough, you're not perfect enough to be God. And so the only hope you have is to put your faith and trust in the one who was born in Bethlehem and died on Calvary's mountain. That's the hope that you and I have of eternal life. And, until, and unless and until you do that, God says that your sin is not forgiven. Your pride prevents that from happening. And you'll spend eternity separated from him. But if you'll humble yourself to the king of kings and lord of lords. And lay your heart down before him and say, Lord, you're right. Without you, I'm nothing. Without you, I can't take my next breath. Lord, I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you. And I need you to come and wash me clean. I need the forgiveness that only comes from the blood of Jesus who died on the cross. Father, would you forgive me of my sins and make me part of your family? His word is clear that when you do that, you become his child. There's only one worthy of worship. And yeah, he was born in a tiny little town on the outskirts of Jerusalem that seemed without meaning. And we sing a song about it during the Christmas season. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above while mortal sleep the angels keep their watch of wondering love. O oh, morning stars, together proclaim the holy birth and praises sing to God the King and peace to men on earth. O oh, holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell, oh come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. I plead with you today, if you have never humbled yourself enough to put your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone for eternal life, don't let this day pass until you come to God and say, Lord, I can't get there on my own. I need your forgiveness. I need your cleansing. I need what only your son can do in me. Make it a Christmas prayer. Even if you pray these words, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on me, I pray. Cast out my sin and enter in. Be born in me today. Would you, during this Christmas season, make, it that, make this the day that you'd put your trust in Christ alone for your eternal life? You can leave here today knowing that you know that if you were to take your last breath on earth, you'd take your first breath in heaven. But you can only have that assurance if you humble yourself and put your faith and trust in Jesus, the one who humbled himself and died for you. This is your opportunity to do that. Matthew, would you come lead us in a hymn of response? And and if God is calling you to to make a a, a commitment to follow him, to put your faith in him for the first time or to put your faith in him in a new way, I'm gonna encourage you to come. You can pray with Kevin or I, we'll be up here. You may wanna just pray at the altar. But if you'd like a little bit more counseling, we'll have someone that can sit down with you and help you. But stand with us as Matthew leads us, and I pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the incredible prophecy that came hundreds of years before the birth of Christ that the Messiah would be born in the little town of Bethlehem. We thank you for, for your display, your desire to use what seems so small to do something so great. And Father, I believe that that's a message you have for every one of us. Even when we seem broken, even when we seem like we have no hope, that we can't do anything in our circumstances, you are a God who takes us out of our circumstances to accomplish your great purpose. So Father, I pray if anyone here hearing this message today doesn't know for sure that they're they, they where they'd go when they take their last breath on this earth. They don't know that their eternity is secure. I pray that they'd get that settled. But Father, for those of us who are struggling, who feel like we're not enough, who feel like that that we can't accomplish enough, that we're too weak, we're too broken, we, we can't get through the next day, the next week, the next month, or the next year. Lord, remind us of what you can do when we surrender our lives and everything we have over to you. Let your spirit speak today and draw us to you. We pray in Jesus' name.